you're fighting your doubt doesn't matter what happened doesn't matter who you're fighting if you're fighting the worst fighter ever there's still a little doubt ladies and gentlemen this is the main event of the evening the only time that i really feel like there wasn't a threat was when i first fought stipe presenting the undisputed ufc heavyweight champion of the world stipe miocic and he didn't play out good for me it's march 27th 2021 at the ufc apex in las vegas nevada Mixed martial artist Francis Ngannou of Cameroon is taking on two-time heavyweight champ Stipe Miocic of Ohio. This is the second time Ngannou is trying to take the title away from Stipe. Three years earlier, Ngannou lost in a unanimous decision after going five rounds. I know that Stipe is good, he's dangerous, but I know his limit. This yes. is the heavyweight title and the scariest contender against the greatest sure. champion. Ready, let's fight. My biggest concern was to lose control as to just go like, okay, let's go kill him, you know. And that was like one of the things that I knew was my biggest mistake from my first fight. Already seeing a more patient Francis Ngannou, beautiful low kick. And you do not want to get kicked with those legs. Both men stand six feet four, but at 263 pounds, Ngannou outweighs Stipe. By about 30 pounds. Now, Stipe is considered one of the greatest heavyweights ever in the UFC, but Nganu has this raw power. He holds the record for the hardest punch ever in the world. It registered at 96 horsepower. That is more than a Honda Civic. But does Nganu have the staying power? Boy, Francis has started fast and good, but he's being patient. Yes. It was just like to come, stay focused, stay collected, and they compose. Even though he's starting fast, he's taking big gaps in between these yeah. big moments. At 34 years old, this moment has been a lifetime in the making for Nganu, who made his way from Cameroon to the streets of Paris before becoming an MMA fighter. Now more than seven years into his career, he's hoping the lessons he learned in his first bout with Stipe are gonna pay off. When you watch a fight, it looks like he's very fast. Oh! Oh! Stipe took that though. But when you're in that fight, it's crazy the amount of thought that you might have between one exchange. Francis landed clean. Like, pop, 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 pop. Like, thousand thought in between. Incredible. That was beautiful. Oh! That kick from Ngannou out of the southpaw stance. Wow! The five minute round goes fast. Well, if you bet on either fighter to get it done in round one, it's time to rip up those tickets. Nganu clearly takes the first round by sticking to his plan of being less aggressive and waiting for his opportunities to strike. Then as the second round begins, Stipe comes out of the gate on the offensive. I felt, I felt it. I'm like, damn, something is going wrong. You're losing. You're getting out of your plan. <laughs> and Francis has got to be careful to not load up. And leave these big openings. Oh, knocked out for Ngannou. Stipe back to his feet. He's another uppercut. Nice counter right from the inside. 
Nganu hits Stipe with a left hook that sends Stipe against the cage. They exchange blows, and then Nganu throws another hook, and a dazed Stipe falls to the ground. Nganu pounces, hitting him in the jaw while Stipe is down. Wow. That was nasty. 52 seconds into the second round, and Ganu wins by knockout. New undisputed UFC heavyweight champion of the world, Francis the Predator and Ganu. This is In the Moment. I'm David Green. Each week, we go inside the mind of an athlete at a pivotal moment in their career. And today, it's reigning UFC heavyweight champ, Francis Ngannou. Becoming a heavyweight champion was my dream. He has been a fighter his entire life. When we come back, what it takes to get into the octagon and how this victory meant so much more than a championship belt. Heavyweight champion was kind of like my own revenge on my life. Francis Ngannou's story right after this break. Hey there, my name is Jody Avergan, and I'm the host of a new podcast from TED called Good Sport. I've learned a ton of life lessons from playing sports, from watching sports, and from covering sports in my career as a journalist. During our first season of Good Sport, we'll look at hotbeds of talent, how a new sport like F1 can break through, how to deal with aging out of playing sports at the highest level, and lots more. Check out Good Sport on Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen. It's been over a year since Francis Ngannou won the UFC Heavyweight Championship. Since then, he's defended the title once back in January. His next fight hasn't been decided as he recovers from knee surgery. But every time he takes on a new challenger, Ngannou feels like he is fighting for everyone back in his home village of Bati, Cameroon. He has an incredible life story that took him from the mountains of West Africa to an MMA training gym in Paris. So the night he first won the championship fulfilled a seemingly impossible dream. How were you feeling going into that night? Like, what were you, what were you thinking about in the, in the hour or two before the fight? I always kind of like have a recap of where I came from, like how I get there. So I think 30 minutes before the fight, I was just thinking like, man... The whole country is like up watching you and it's 4 a.m. in Cameroon. They are up, nobody is sleeping all night long trying to stay up just to watch you fight around 5 or 6 a.m. Nobody won't sleep until they see the fight. Yeah. I know that they are hoping or they, they are praying like crossing finger, like, oh, let's, let it win, you know. So I got this guy to go there and film it like life to see how people react and uh, you know it's kind of like hits you like man it's huge this is not just about me this is not just about my fight you know thought about that then suddenly you feel like a soldier like okay I'm like a marines out there fighting for my country that's not all he was thinking about and Ganu couldn't shake what happened three years earlier the first time he went up against Stipe Miocic he lost by decision in five rounds now Nganu is so powerful he normally finishes a match in the first or second round he wasn't used to going all five rounds 
And was that in your mind, how you had lost to him when you were getting ready for this fight? He was from my mind for the past, I think, the past three years. Wow. Because I watched that fight, and I'm like, what the hell is this guy? He looks like me, but I don't recognize me. But, you know, that also served me as an experience walking into this fight. Uh, the first time, some part in my heart, I was like, what really happened when you get into three-round fight? Because I never get there. You usually finish it off yeah. pretty fast. Yeah, pretty fast. Yeah. The third round, I never see the uh -huh. third round. Oh, so you're thinking, like, what if this goes long? Do I even know how to, how to yeah, do Yeah, that was five rounds. Uh -huh. so, so tell me about the first minutes of, of the first round. I mean, what, what was your team saying to you? What the first you minute of the first round, my biggest concern was to lose control. It was just like to stay focused, stay collected, and stay composed on when whatever you initiate. Once you calmed yourself down in that first round, did you feel like you got into a groove? Yeah, yeah. I was just like, calm down, you get this. No need to rush. So is that the risk? Like if you went in too fast, like, you can yes, make a like, mistake and... Yeah, like out of control because you expose yourself and you're more vulnerable. So I had that concern. And when I was going to the second fight, I'm like, I've been here. I know what it is like to be in five round fight. I wasn't prepared enough last time. And this time I, I know how it is. I prepare very well. And if I uh, fight smart, I'm gonna get to that five round looking good. Mm -hmm. What happened if you find yourself in the third, fourth, fifth round do you still have something in your gas tank? That's the question that you have to answer. Did you feel going into the second round that you were about to finish this? No, I wasn't even thinking about finish. The first thing was like, take your head off the finish. Forget about the finish. So I, I was reminding myself like, just fight. If it goes to decision, make sure that you fight properly. So if it goes to decision, you win either way. A win is a win. But like I remember growing up watching boxing with my grandfather. And like the thing I always wondered was when you would see a knockout blow, was it planned? Do you think about it in the second or two before and you're like killer mode and I'm ready to finish no, this? No, or? no, That wasn't a killer mode. It was just like calm down. Like after the first round, the most important thing in my mind was like, how do I feel? Would I be able to go four more rounds? How do I feel? Mm, I feel good, not bad. So that means I was composed. I need to keep the space, like don't rush, don't be explosive. So when we get to the second round, I saw that he changed the speed. He knows that he lost, he lost the first round. So it was like, okay, let's come for the second round, be more aggressive. And I saw that, and now I'm like, you are not changing my rhythm. And I hit him, then I follow him. Throwed a lot of punches all over, then he hit me back. At that moment, I'm like, damn, if this happened to me, you're doing something wrong. Don't do that, calm down. And then he just came, then I threw a hook that caught him, and he goes out. That was the big one. That was the finish. Mm -hmm. So you didn't think this hook is gonna take him out. No, no, just no. Your body no, did no. it. Usually, like, when you're fighting, and I think that's why you have to train a lot. When you're fighting, you don't think about stuff like that. You never think, like, this is the punch to hurt somebody. 
So when you knew it was over, what, what was going through your mind? Becoming a heavyweight champion was my dream, the achievement, kind of like my own revenge on my life, on my childhood, because I always think like I would be high enough to anybody that doubted me to see that, oh, that guy wasn't bad. Revenge on your own life. That is so powerful. What does that mean? Why, why did you need to take revenge on your own life? <laughs> because life threw me a lot of punches at the moment that I couldn't counter. Life put me down and make people doubt me, look at me sometimes as I'm a piece of shit. I'm like, uh, people won't remember me like that. That's not happening. I'm too proud to accept those type of things. Well, so can we go back? Can you take me back to the beginning of of your life and will you tell me about your village in, in Cameroon where you grew up? About my village? Yeah. Uh, it's the most beautiful village that you will ever find. Peaceful piece of land, small, on top of the mountain, about 3,500 feet altitude, tropical climate with a dry and wet season. And when you go there, you climb on top of the mountain, you look around and you see like grass and trees, they are all green. And there's mountains and mountains and mountains. Sounds beautiful. Yes, it's beautiful. But growing up, I hated that village. Why? <laughs> because that was the only place that I have been. Uh, and like I was forced to be there and it wasn't developed at all. We didn't have electricity. We used wood to make fire. Mm -hmm cook and everything if we have to read a book we have to like light up the wood so the flame can come we can use it to read our book so the condition of our life there was miserable even to afford the minimum wasn't easy you know so and we were like very poor and couldn't afford anything that's why i have to go work to the sand mine you worked in the sand mine right yeah when you were how old? Nine. Nine years old. What was the work like? Like, what was a day in the sand mine like? You're going to shovel sand. Because I was nine years old, I couldn't dig in the mountain because we dig the mountain. You were too little. I was too little. But since I have no choice, I have to contribute a little bit and have to work, you know, do something. Mm -hmm. And that's what we were doing from age nine by 11 were good enough, able to shovel, even though uh, not as strong as adult, but lucky for me, I was always strong and bigger than a kid from, from my age. Because even though I was 11, not many kids that was 13 or 14 could have done what I was doing. So that was the advantage that I had at that moment. Were you going to school too? Yeah, we were doing that in order to like afford school and all the stuff. We were behind other kids. Like when we go at school sometimes, we don't have pain because regardless our effort, it wasn't enough to provide all the necessity. You were going to school, but you didn't have pen or pencil or notebooks. Sometimes, so yeah. You couldn't afford it. And sometimes I would buy a book and then still need a pen. Or maybe like two days after, the ink in my pen is finished and I don't have another one. And I will always get kicked out of the school for those type of things. Not to mention the school fee. And they're going to kick you out today for fee. And uh, the next week, you're going to leave the class on your own because you're hungry. You didn't take a breakfast. It's maybe 2 p.m. So 
I was so embarrassed all the time. I was like the subject of shame. And nobody is really excited to be a friend with that, that kid. You know, the kid that didn't have pain. The kid that was like thrown out of the class, in the middle of the class because he didn't have pain. Come on, you know. That sounds hard and lonely. That's what it is. I remember one day we have a uh, chemistry class and I don't know what exactly I I didn't have and they kicked me out of the classroom. And then I went out, I was so pissed, like I couldn't breathe. I was like, just want to cry, just want to scream. What the hell is this? What do I did really wrong? Like, so I was so like, and thinking about how those kids look at me, like I was nothing. So I was so upset. Then suddenly I thought about it. I'm like, wait a minute. I'm even better than those kids because they are just uh, fortunate enough to have a parent that can provide for them. So technically, I don't deserve any less. By the way, I'm even better because what I have, I'm working hard for it. And, that's uh, an amazing, mature thought to have as a 13-year-old. Like that's, And that changes everything. I have to prove those kids that I'm not uh, beneath them. I was so rejected. To be seen as a normal person at that time wasn't possible unless I do something that is outstanding. I need something outstanding so all of them can look at me. I'm like, oh, damn, that guy wasn't that bad. Because otherwise, people have registered me in their mind and that won't change unless I do something that's going to change that. That's when I started to think about it. My love about combat sport, martial arts, with my desire to like prove something that's going to elevate me high enough for everyone to see me and to recognize that I'm worthy. I'm not worthless. And your parents divorced when you were, my you were parents, six, is that right? Yes, my parents divorced. What about time. your dad? Yeah, my dad was a ghost. A ghost? I mean, yeah, because I didn't see my dad maybe four years after mm-hmm. they got divorced. What was your dad like? Uh, he was handsome, he was strong, mm-hmm. and he was my best man in the world. Best man in the world? I mean, the guy that I love the most. Mm-hmm. You know, he was uh, he was my hero. Not in the sense that uh, to copy what he's doing, but he was just my hero because, you know, you can't explain why kids love their dad, you know. I remember after the divorce, like, I was on my mom's side, and there was always, like, bring criticism up about my dad. It Your is, mom's side of the family would talk yes, about him. And yes, how he's not a good guy, and... No, you don't talk about my dad. And when I'm there, you don't say my dad is no good. No, I was always defending my dad. But you said you didn't want to be like him. What? Yes, because I knew he was violent. Did he hurt you? Did he hurt you? He hurts everybody. Because maybe without his uh, violence, they wouldn't get divorced and we would have had a better life. Uh, Yeah, he was violent, beating fighting like he would hurt you and your mom and uh, yes he would beat you up I mean in Africa it's like it sounds normal to beat the kids hmm. <laughs> to whip kids kid ass 
at that you... time he's he's changing but at that time he was like that but my dad was just like out of control but you defend him yeah but i know that uh, he was violent and how people talk about him i didn't want people to talk about me like that so you didn't want to be like him no like i mean that was the first thing like even one year old kids know when something is bad or good you mm -hmm. know everybody know what is good and bad you just choose to be bad or to be good because like when you look at a newborn baby three months six months look at that baby smile and he will smile back look at him mean and he will cry right mm -hmm. his emotion is natural you're in a sport that's violent obviously is that a way to be like your father without hurting i always love combat sport i love anything that power related but didn't want to have my dad's reputation and that's like one of the things that guided me and helped me to come to a decision to f do boxing as a profession so regardless what my dad was he's the guy that educated me the most not to show me what to do but to show me what to not do as soon as i as i understand what i don't want to do the rest of what I want to do I figured that out on my own but I knew that I didn't want to be like him so anytime that I was doing something that was getting me close to my dad I knew I was doing something wrong the journey from Cameroon to UFC champion would take Francis and Ganu from the sand mines of West Africa to an MMA training center in Paris to get there, he would face the same dangers as hundreds of thousands of other refugees crossing the Mediterranean into Europe. Do you remember the day that you made it to Spain? Oh yeah, of course. Man, oof. how come you can't forget that day? I don't know if I can describe the feeling and I don't know if you ever understand. More of Francis Ngannou's story when we come back. How did you decide to leave Cameroon? So, um, with my dad reputation, so even though I love everything power related, uh, I didn't want to be like him. So, how can I express what I love without being associated with my dad? That was a dilemma. Then I found myself in the village and there wasn't anything around that can educate me about like combat sport and anything. I want something that can combine everything that I need. A profession, my passion for combat sport, yeah. and then that gonna elevate me and put me at the point that all those people who look at me, I'm like, oh, that kid that we thought was worthless, wasn't worthless. Now we're all looking up to him. Yeah, so I thought the best thing was boxing. How old were you? I was 13. This was all 13? Yeah. Wow, okay. Were you boxing or were you just dreaming of boxing? No, I was just dreaming. You never went to a gym? You never... No. So at 22, I left the village to go to the city just to find a boxing gym. Which I you had was... never seen? You had never no, been No, I have never seen. Like, I didn't have any clue of what a boxing gym would look like. You know, I was so strong, I feel like I'm going to get there and take two people at once and beat them. Wow. <laughs> then I get there, I was shocked. I'm like, damn, this is not what I thought it was. What surprised you? It was tough. <laughs> what is, it was hard. This is not easy. It was hard. Uh -huh. I remember like the first two months, 
I have to like just work, work on the footwork and then jab, 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 then backward, jab, jab on the left, jab, jab. And at some moment, my shoulder was like heavy. I couldn't raise my hand anymore. And then I'm like, oh, you want to fight somebody? There's nobody in front of you and you can't even raise your hand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this boxing thing is not easy. Uh, but did you like it? Oh, I love it. First of all, from where I came from to get there, I'm like, okay, I'm going to do boxing in, in Cameroon that nobody has ever made it doing boxing. It was a hell of courage. You know, people thought I was like crazy, but I love boxing so yeah. much. So I'm like, okay, whatever happened, at least I did what I love. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't easy, believe me, because I had no support. I was on my own and I knew that whatever can happen will not happen with me staying in Cameroon. Why? Because there's not opportunity. Like mm. what? I'm going to fight there. I'll uh, maybe not get paid or what? Like You had to go. I had to go. I knew that I had to go. Was that a hard decision? It was hard to leave your family, your country and everything. But I knew that that's my only way out. April 2012. I left the country. And before I left, I went to the village for three weeks. Um, and then I was just in the village looking at my family and my mom. I would be staring at her. Then we would cross eye and she would be like, why are you looking at me like that? I think she knew like something was going on. You hadn't told her that you were leaving yet? No, because I didn't tell anybody. Because like, you sound crazy a little bit if you're going and you don't know where you're going. Yeah, right. you didn't want to hear that. Yeah, so I didn't tell anybody about uh, me leaving. Why were you looking at your mom like that? Because I was like, maybe this is the last time that I'm seeing her. I knew it was dangerous. A lot of people have left and never come back. And they never hear from them anymore. So I'm like, okay, I don't know where I'm going to, what I'm putting myself into. But what I do know is that I'm not going to stay here because, like, you know, my dad got sick, passed away. Your dad died when you were how old? Fifteen. Fifteen when he died? Yeah. And then, you know, somewhere in my heart, I always tell myself, like, maybe if I had money to bring him to the hospital, maybe he would still be alive. That's one of the reasons why I was looking at her like that. Thinking about, I might be abandoning you if I leave, or thinking about, I want to go make money and hopefully bring it back to you someday like what was the thought the thought was to go out there and get it done for me for my people not only for her for my family for my brothers my siblings because one thing that i know since day one is that my kid won't go through whatever i've been through i was thinking of my future kids Mm -hmm. yeah like my future family right yeah because i know that eventually i'll have kids but you're very conflicted. You're looking at your mom and you're, I mean, that, that sounds like a really hard moment. But there wasn't a doubt about like, yes, it was hard, but I was so like motivated that anything could have stopped me. And nothing did stop him. And Ganu traveled more than 3,000 miles over land through Nigeria, Niger, and Algeria until he arrived at the northern tip of Africa in Morocco. From there, he tried to make it to Spain by crossing the Mediterranean in a small raft six times, even though he couldn't swim. 
Each time he was caught and sent back to Morocco, but eventually he did make it. At 26, he arrived in Paris with no place to live, no job. He started working out at the MMA factory in Paris, and he put his boxing dreams on pause to pursue mixed martial arts. Nganu has told his story before, and the treatment he endured, it is hard to read about. How long was this journey to to get to Paris? I mean, it's like more than... 14 eight, months. 14 months. I mean, just reading it makes me shake. You can't read enough to understand like what happened because I've been through all those stuff, but sometimes when I think about some stage, it feel like it wasn't real. So many days was like hard until you get to the next day and it get harder. <laughs> it's just so many of them. But I mean, you tried to cross the water to get to Spain like a bunch of times, right? I mean, yeah. I, that must be terrifying. You're on a raft, right? You know, those flexible, um, yeah. inflatable yeah. that they use for the um, swimming pool. Yep. That was what we were into. And then sometimes we take like this rubber that is inside the tire that holds the air. We would take it and blow the air inside. So that would be our life jacket and put it on our waist. Because that's actually is very secure than a life jacket and it's cheaper. You're going in the Mediterranean Sea. So what's happened if he blows or, I don't know, if fish or something came under and blew it up? Like, it's over. Do you remember the day that you made it to Spain? Oh, yeah, of course. Man, Oof. how come you can't forget that day? Oh, man. Oh, they did that. I don't know if I can describe the feeling, and I don't know if you ever understand. Because I left Cameroon April 3rd, 2012, and the day that we get rescued in that inflated boat in the ocean was April 3rd, 2013. One year exactly. And uh, the people, my crew, were so excited that we're jumping. We get rescued by the Red Cross, so they get us in their uh, raft, their boat. It was safe. They was like jumping, excited, like yelling. I was just thinking about it. I'm like, this is just too much to be random. This is a sign, something, this means something. I have to find out what this means exactly. What's the meaning? I have never doubted about me becoming a champion. Like, even in my hardest moment, I will find comfort in the idea that there is something in the end of the tunnel. There is something, there is a light, pride light, like for me, a future. I'm like, okay, if this is the price to pay for that light, I'll pay the price. That's a lot of faith. Yeah, it's a lot of faith. Is it religion? Is it a re are you a religious guy? Or like, no, what, where's that faith? That's the question. Ask myself why I kept going at this moment. And the only answer was that I kind of like have a gift because you know when you're with people in the same situation and even worse, but you can still look at them and feel inside your heart that I have a better future than these people. But he sound very arrogant even to think that or to say it. You can't even say it. You are even afraid to let yourself think like that. But you feel it, just a feeling. Mm -hmm. 
So sometimes you feel like, am I just a bad person? Am I just a selfish person? I was in the position that I was even less than other people. I was in the position that I didn't have what to eat. I didn't have clothes to wear. I didn't have nothing. Sometimes I was barefoot. Sometimes it was a winter and I didn't have clothes on me. You know? So what was so the day you know, that you felt like you had, I don't even know the right way to put this, like that you had made it. You didn't have to worry about buying pens anymore. You didn't have to worry about being poor or looked down upon. You never feel it. I cannot walk out there, cross a pen without picking it. You see a pen like on the street and you pick it up? Instantly. Because you know what it's like to not have one. Because like I grew up with, pen for me was a goal. Like I pick a pen all day long. Like let me, let me alone poverty. I'm not poor anymore. 50 years after if I saw a pen, instantly pick it up. That's amazing. Then now I have boxes in my house. When I pick them up, I just put them in. This sounds like it's part of the revenge on yeah. your life in some way. And then I started to collect even like shoes and because I have a foundation now and I load container of stuff sending home, like you stuff that I collect from people. <laughs> I knock to my neighbor's door to ask if they have old shoes or old clothes that they don't wear. And uh, they are very confused. Like, is it like a homeless or something? I'm like, no, don't worry, bro. Just give it, you know, they don't understand. <laughs> tell me tell me about your foundation. What, are, what What's the mission? We have a gym to have mm. kids in Cameroon. The first one was built in my village. And then we target two locations. The main goal of it was just like to empower those kids, you know, to make them believe in themselves. Because growing up out there, having a dream was very hard. You know, when you have a dream in that little area, it's very dangerous because nobody believes in dream and they want to pull you down. They want to drain your energy down. Like, oh, it's not happening. And and that's how a lot of people give up on their dream mm -hmm. because everybody around them are telling them it's not going to work. They are draining their energy. You will see some kids like full of energy, ambition, and even a talent. Um, and then at some point, next next time you see him, he's just in the sun quarry working full time. I don't think how I get where I am is a way that I would wish anybody to get there. Because it was so hard and, yeah. and dangerous. Yeah, because unfortunately, I think I have influenced some kids from my country I know from my village, I know kids kid that has died. Trying to yes, follow they, your they path. Died, to yes, get... they died in Morocco, at least two or three kids. And I know for sure that it's just because I made it, they want to make it as well. Do you feel responsible in some somehow, way? For somehow, yeah. Even though, like, uh, I even team up with the organization, the that migration, migration organization, organization okay. that helps people to go back to their country. They will help them with the transport and then maybe help them there to, like, learn a job, mm -hmm. you know. That's some complicated shit, them. dealing with, like, wanting to be a role model, but knowing that people have, have died trying to do it. I mean, that's that's yeah. a lot to carry. And everybody will come, like, Oh, how do you get it? How do you get there? What is the route to get in? I'm um, like, don't ask me. Because, and the dilemma in this situation is like, if you, you tell some kid like, okay, this is the route. If he dies, it's your fault. 
You've gone back to Cameroon a, oh, a bunch a of times. Yeah. How's your family doing? They're doing pretty good. Your mom's okay? She's very good. Did they watch your championship fight? They watch every fight. They watch every single thing. Even my mom, uh, at first they wasn't watching. Some people was like, he's violent. He becomes so big and big and they watch. And now, like, I call my mom when I have a fight coming up because I don't want to talk about fight anymore. I call her, she was just like, I saw this on internet. I even saw this. I saw, I'm like, stop. <laughs> I just want to talk about something else. Tell me about, I didn't call you for a fight. <laughs> you know, I'm like, this guy said this. Yeah. That guy said that. I'm like, stop. <laughs> so what do you, what do you, what is it like to go back? I mean, you, you wanted to take revenge on this life back there. Like, what are you thinking about when you go back? Even though I hated that life, now I understand that without that life, I wouldn't be who I am today. You know, I think I was just getting prepared for what I'm doing today. So what's in your dream now? What's my dream? Do the best that I can possibly do in each way. Be the best of myself. And I think I have always been a fighter. You know, my entire life is a fighting. And I think uh, what everybody out there is doing, the obstacles, the challenges that they are facing, make them fighters, you know. But you're so, you're so gentle as a person. Like it's, it's just, it's stunning to sit here with you and, and like you're, you seem like a very gentle, kind soul. And then to compare that to the, the violence, it's jarring. You know, um, I recognize a good fighter or a great fighter on his discipline. Fighting is not just like go out there and flex, throw some power, you know, is spiritual. You have to collect yourself, really be able to control yourself. The best fighter is the guy that can control himself the most, you know, is a job. When I go there, is to do my job. And after that, I'm done with it. Because although I love fighting, this eventually ends at some point. Well, Francis, thank you. It's really nice talking to you. Thank you, David. That is the reigning UFC heavyweight champion of the world, Francis the Predator Ngannou. To find out about our upcoming interviews, follow Religion of Sports on Instagram and Twitter, and follow me. I am at Fearless Green. That is Fearless underscore Green with an E on the end. In the Moment is produced by Sarah McCrory, sound design and mixing by Morgan Flannery and Jocelyn Gonzalez at PRX Productions. Britt Kahn is our talent booker. Our production manager is Estella Rivas Bryant. Story research by Joe Levin. Kevin Sullivan edited the episode and is the head of talk. Gotham Chopra, Amit Sankaran, and Adam Schlossman are our executive producers. Fearless Media is our consulting producer. And special thanks to Teresa Tran. In the Moment is a production of Religion of Sports and PRX. I'm David Green. We'll be back next week with another athlete and their moment.